Hello, and welcome to the AK47 podcast. My name is Kristen Godsey, and today is May 17th, which means that my new book, Everyday Utopia, What 2,000 Years of Wild Experiments Can Teach Us About the Good Life, has just launched yesterday in the United States, and it will launch tomorrow on May 18th in the United Kingdom with a different subtitle in praise of radical alternatives to the traditional family home. I am, of course, always very excited, but also nervous when a new book is out there in the world. And this is a period of time when authors are just sort of waiting around to see what the reviews and the reactions will be. And so for today's episode, I decided that I am actually going to read a 1982 review in the New York Times of a translation of one of Alexandra Kollontai's works of fiction, A Great Love, which was translated by Kathy Porter. And uh, it's uh, interesting to just think about the genre of the review, which uh, they live on in this interesting way and reflect on the popular reception of certain books. So it's interesting that in her own time, Kalantai faced an incredible amount of pushback for a lot of her writings. But the interesting thing about her fiction is that it continued to be translated into other languages and it continued to be reviewed and it has sort of lived on long after many of her essays, which were the kinds of things that she really put herself into politically. As I've mentioned on other podcasts, I think Kalantai's fiction was an attempt in many ways to reach working class women who didn't have time for political tracts or manifestos, but were moved or going to be more moved by stories. And so this 1982 translation of A Great Love into English really kind of is interesting because it follows upon the release of the Academy Award winning movie Reds, which was directed and starred in by an actor called Warren Beatty. Many of you younger people may not know who he is, but it was a very moving film adaptation of John Reed's uh, book, 10 Days That Shook the World, about an American journalist, John Reed, who was in Russia for the time of the Russian Revolution. And it gets mentioned at the beginning of this review, which is why I, I think it's important to understand the context of this. Re- this book is coming out in a period of time in the United States where there's sort of renewed interest in the history of the Russian Revolution and its legacies. Obviously, it's also the Reagan era, so it's also a time of renewed animosity between the United States and the Soviet Union. But before I read this interesting review from the New York Times, it's April 25th, 1982 was when it was published, I just want to mention a couple of media-related things around the book. This morning, there was a list of utopian books suggested for summer reading that came out on Literary Hub. I selected some of my favorite utopian books and wrote little annotations to tell you what they're about and why they're important. I think it was a fun little 
little attempt to kind of find books that will help us deprogram our brains from the kind of pervasive dystopianism that permeates a lot of our media landscape these days. I also was a guest on one of my favorite podcasts, Revolutionary Left Radio, with the incomparable Brett O'Shea. This was my first formal interview with somebody about the new book, and I was so grateful that it was Brett because he always asks the best questions. So if you haven't listened to Revolutionary Left Radio, you really should check out the podcast. I will leave a link to my episode in the show notes, as well as a link to the Lit Hub listicle. I think it's what it's called, a listicle. It's not an article, but a listicle. It's one of those interesting internet words. I will also post a link to an excerpt from the book, which was published on Pen Today. So there's, you know, lots of things happening I am hoping to get a lot more stuff out there. I'm writing a couple of shorter articles and pieces, and you know, there's just lots of stuff happening when a book launches. It's a very nerve-wracking time, as I mentioned before. So I can only imagine what it must have been like for Kalantai at a period of time when you know the major places where things were published were newspapers. And to be kind of trashed in print or to be criticized in print by your colleagues, particularly for Kalantai in the 20s when she started writing these fictional stories, which, you know, even from our vantage point in 2023, were pretty sexually progressive for their time and certainly even to a certain extent today. Uh, But even more importantly, I think that the work that is being reviewed in 1982 the story, it's really kind of a novella called A Great Love, was particularly controversial because it has been recognized as a story about a love triangle that existed between Lenin, uh, Nadezhda Krupskaya, his wife, and one of their comrades, Inessa Armand. And so Kalantai, this is a very thinly veiled story about Lenin. And so I can imagine that this must have been an extremely controversial story when it appeared. So I'll go ahead and read the review. And then I'll talk a little bit about the context of the story. And maybe we'll actually read this story on the podcast because it is a kind of fun one. Anyway, so here we are. A Great Love by Alexander Kalantai, translated and introduced by Kathy Porter. This is by uh, published by W.W. Norton & Company. It was $12.95 in cloth and $4.95 in paper in 1982. It is curious that Warren Beatty chose not to include the colorful, at times scandalous, Alexander Kalantai in his film Reds. When he did include Louise Bryant, who was in many ways the American counterpart of the Russian Kolontai. Similar issues engaged the large energies of Bryant, 1890 to 1936, and Kolontai, 1872 to 1952. Feminism, liberation from sexual and family roles, the conflict between work and home, and reconciling these problems with Marxist-Leninist ideology. Both women came from upper-class bourgeois backgrounds, but spouted working-class language. Both acted out in peripatetic personal lives, unconventional and frequently contradictory, 
ideas on family, love, and sexual intimacy, about which they voluminously wrote and preached. Bryant met Kollontai in Russia around the time of the 1917 revolution and later described her in Mirrors of Moscow. Quote, Madame Kollontai is about 50 years of age and appears much younger. She has dark brown hair and blue eyes and could easily be taken for an American, unquote. And more telling, quote, she is one of the few women communists who cares about her appearance, unquote. Politics, not fiction, was Kollontai's great love. That she began writing novels and stories only in 1922, after she had been effectively excluded from active participation in the new Soviet government, indicates that for her, writing was a substitute for arguing ideology in smoke-filled rooms. Pushed out of a male-dominated power elite that was increasingly uncomfortable with her inconsistent advocacy of feminist issues, she was sent in 1922 as a member of a Soviet trade delegation to Oslo. She worked in diplomatic posts in Scandinavia until 1945. Kollontai used the first year of her exile to produce two substantial works of fiction published in Russian in 1923, Love of Worker Bees and A Great Love. Dial Press's Virago Modern Classics published Kathy Porter's translation of Love of Worker Bees in 1977. Now we have the companion volume. A Great Love contains three stories. The longest and most interesting, actually a novella, gives its title to the collection. This is the first English translation of the entire collection, though the title story had been translated once, floridly, by Lily Lore in 1929. Kolontai was a widely published journalist when she wrote A Great Love, and the stories are clearly a journalist's fiction. The book, especially the titled novella, is more interesting as history than as literature. But then the history to which Kollontai was witness was not infrequently stranger than fiction. Her involvement with married men, who were also her political comrades, her not always amicable relationship with Vladimir Ilyich Lenin and his wife secretary N.K. Krupskaya, Lenin's supposed affair with the Bolshevik feminist Inessa Armand, this is the historical material out of which Kollontai created the fictional A Great Love. The scene? France, around 1910. The cast? Russian revolutionaries in exile, fervorously planning their takeover of the homeland and the new order to follow. The Great Love is between Natasha, an efficient party worker, and Semyon Semyonovich, a party ideologue of vague but clearly superior position. The problem is that Semyon is already married to Anyuta, who is faithful, the mother of his children, and unfortunately nagging. Natasha knows and likes Anyuta. Semyon neglects and mistreats both corners of the triangle, but Natasha from whose viewpoint the story is told, is emotionally incapable of tearing herself away from this frustrating menage. Natasha wants a man comrade with whom she can talk over party strategy after making love. Semyon wants to make love. Rather, he wants to have sex, for Natasha finds his physical approaches crude and insensitive. 
The novella chronicles the final dissolution of their relationship, mostly in a sordid provincial hotel room to which Natasha is confined, lest Semyon's colleagues or Anuta find out what is going on. Natasha's hard-earned liberation at the end strangely foreshadows current films and novels about unmarried professional women driving off into the sunset alone but happier. Natasha takes a train, quote, She took her seat and at once began to sort through her papers and letters, throwing some away, putting some aside for future reference, replying to others. Now she belonged body and soul to her work. Long, long ago, she had felt a great love, but that love had ebbed away. Semyon Semyonovich, in his heedless male stupidity, had destroyed it. Unquote. Lenin is generally acknowledged as the historical prototype for Semyon, Lenin's wife, Krupskaya, for Anyuta, and Anessa Armand for Natasha. Kolontai observed these three living in exile in Paris in 1910-11. Indisputable historical evidence establishing a definite sexual liaison between Lenin and Armand seems to be lacking. If there were any, Soviet historians would suppress it, concerned as they are with Lenin's reputation as a saintly family man. Much circumstantial evidence does exist. Miss Porter believes, as she points out in her lengthy introduction, that Stalin had a great love republished in 1927 as part of a campaign to discredit and humiliate Krupskaya. If indeed Semyon is Lenin, then this is hardly a flattering portrait of the mausoleum hero. The other two stories also address Kalantai's favorite theme, love versus party duty. It is a sort of communist classicism. 32 pages are pages of an unfinished dissertation, unfinished because the writer is distracted by a relationship with a worker who can only appreciate her sexuality conversation piece is a train platform vignette, rather Chekhovian. A married woman tries to break off her affair with a man, but he persuades her to put off the decision until tomorrow. Now that Kalantai has been canonized by Germaine Greer and the feminist movement, and recreated in three recent biographies, all by women, Barbara Evans Clements, Beatrice Farnsworth, and Kathy Porter herself, The time has come to assess her fiction seriously. Most critics, notably Miss Clements and Simone Karlinsky in his review of the biographies, have tended to discount Kollontai's stories as tendentious, simplistic, and wooden. I can't entirely agree. At her best, when she resists easy answers in describing the pain of ending safe but restrictive relationships and the sacrifices involved in juggling lovers and careers, Kalantai is provocative, prescient, and compassionate. What Louise Bryant said of her applies as well to her fiction. Quote, her inconsistencies are her most feminine trait as well as one of her most alluring characteristics, unquote. So that was a review of a translation of Kalantai's collection of stories called A Great Love from April 25th, 1982 in the New York Times. 
Obviously, there's not a lot that's going on here other than a description of the book, but I do think it's very interesting that this review made it into the New York Times, given that obviously Kollontai was a communist and a Soviet writer at a time of renewed animosity between the United States and the Soviet Union, and that this reviewer really sees Kollontai as quite prescient of women's struggles. So the name of the reviewer is Harlow Robinson. And this is a kind of moment after the great feminist movement in the United States when Kollontai does kind of become a bit of a a heroine to a lot of left socialist feminists. So the endurance of her fiction, I think, is really interesting. I have recently looked at some syllabi and I have learned of graduate students who are really going back and digging into Kollontai's fiction in a way that I think is interesting in the current moment because it is very rich. I mean, I myself do tend to sort of sometimes feel as if the the prose is a little wooden. Now, of course, that's also has to do with the translation. But I think this review is trying to get us to recognize something else, which is that Kalantai was using fiction not only to reach working class women, but also to try to talk about some of the inconsistencies in party life and the ways in which a lot of the leaders, including Lenin himself, were quite hypocrites. He was a a rather Philistine when it came to to sexual politics as leader of the Soviet Union. But here, Kalantai is basically pointing out that he had this pretty unconventional relationship with Armand and Krupskaya in exile. There's always a lot of debate uh, about whether or not Inessa Armand was Lenin's uh, lover and also whether she was Krupskaya's lover, because I do think there's a good evidence for that as well. I actually write about that in a chapter on Armand in Red Valkyries. But the book review, wow, it is an interesting thing. You know, I know some authors who never read them. I know some authors who utterly obsess over them. Some writers feel that a negative review is much worse than not being reviewed at all. Others will say that all publicity, even negative publicity, is good publicity. I think it's hard not to read your reviews. It's hard not to be hurt by them when they're mean. Obviously, Kalantai wasn't around to see this review of her work 30 years basically after her death. But I certainly think she would be impressed by the ways in which her fiction and her writing still resonates to the present day. We should all wish to be as influential as as Kalantai was because there's still so much interest in in her work, uh, even, you know, basically, gosh, 40 years after this review was, was published in the New York Times. So that's it for me today. Please check out the links that I posted in the show notes if you're interested in learning more about Everyday Utopia. Thank you, as always, so much for listening and keep up the good fight. Yeah.